Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We have two accounts of the birth of Jesus in the New Testament, in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel. Interestingly enough, in Mark's Gospel, we are told nothing about Jesus' birth. If you look at the beginning of Mark, it starts out, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. That's it. it not a word at all about his birth. In John, we have those familiar words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In a sense, echoing or mirroring what we hear at the beginning of the Old Testament in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Back to John 1, later in that chapter, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that's as close as we get in John to uh, an account of the incarnation, how that Jesus came in the flesh. But Matthew and Luke both tell us various aspects of the birth of Jesus. And I, I couldn't help but think uh, back to when I was in school, how that we would have Christmas plays. And usually Luke is where most of the material came from, but some of it would come from Matthew chapter two, the part about the wise men. Usually nothing from chapter 1, and yet, as I mentioned last Sunday, uh, more and more, the older I get, Matthew 1 has become my favorite aspect of the Christmas story. There are several things that stand out, and I want to talk about them. The first is it gives Joseph's side of the story. And if you would look, beginning in verse number 18 um, to the end of the chapter, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph was a righteous, or her husband was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. In these verses, we learn the following about Joseph. First of all, he was a righteous man. And being a righteous man, we, we can't help but wonder what he felt when he found out that Mary was pregnant. Certainly, he must have felt betrayed. And yet his thoughts are not of himself, but rather of her. Because, in fact, in Jewish tradition, uh, it was very possible that Mary could have been put to death for what she had done. But he was considerate of her. He did not want to expose her to public disgrace, let alone death. And so he was going to divorce her quietly. And yet this righteous man, certainly who must have felt betrayed, was an obedient man. Um, he was told that what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. I mean, he could not have understood what this meant. I mean, all these centuries later, we don't fully understand what it means. And yet he was obedient. And... Um, Joseph is usually the 
the forgotten person, I would say, in the Christmas story, uh, unless you're playing Joseph in a Christmas play and wearing a bathrobe, and you know, then he's sort of important. But otherwise, I think we, we ignore him, and I think we do so wrongly. The other thing that strikes me, and what I'll spend most of my time on today, is the genealogy that precedes Joseph's side of the story. This is found in verses 1 to 17. It's very possible that, in fact, this was Joseph's genealogy, and what we find in Luke is Mary's genealogy, because they are not the same. At a certain point, they come together, um, but for the most part, they are not the same. One author wrote, to us, a genealogy may seem a very tedious way to begin a book and a waste of space. I think what Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus coming into the world was not an accident. His coming into the world happened at the right time in the fullness of time in the providence of God overcoming human weaknesses to accomplish God's purposes. What we find here in Matthew 1 is a long list of names, but it is a partial list. Okay, It is not a complete list. But again, I think this is the part that people skip when they read the Christmas story. If in a family or in a church, if you say, okay, on Christmas Sunday, we're going to read the Christmas story, most people want to begin at verse number 18, the part about Joseph. Or they'll skip that altogether and read the part that we find in Luke chapter 2. Um, by the way, I think some people are, are really relieved that Luke had the common courtesy to put the genealogy where he did, like after the story, so we can skip that part. Um, but one writer wrote this, let no one think that these verses are useless. Every word of it is inspired. And if we have a high view of scripture, if we believe that the Bible is the word of God, and that every word, every part of it is for our benefit, then I think we, we will, in fact, try to work a bit harder to dig, to find the benefit from these verses, from this list of names. Hopefully dig as one would dig for gold. This is the attitude we should have today as we look at this genealogy. By the way, I... In, in doing Bible studies where we've come across a list of names, usually I ask the people in the Bible study, how would you like it if your name was included in the genealogy? I mean, suddenly it takes on a whole different light. It isn't just a bunch of names that we find difficult to pronounce, but these are real people. These are their stories. Look, if you would, and follow along, beginning in verse number one. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. 
Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. We need to realize that a genealogy is more than a listing of names. It is, in fact, the telling of a story or, in, or a series of stories, the people who are mentioned. As Matthew tells the story of the coming of Jesus into the world, he puts it in the context of the stories of the Old Testament. From Abraham to David, 14 generations. By the way, unlike Luke, uh, Matthew does not go all the way back to Adam. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew begins... So Matthew begins with Abraham, whereas Luke goes back to Adam. From David to the exile, 14 generations. It is worth noting that there were, in fact, 21 generations from David to the exile, but Matthew only includes 14. And then from the exile to Jesus himself, 14 generations. Again, Luke has 21. Okay. I think what Matthew wants us to see and what he insists on is that if we're going to understand Jesus coming into the world, we need to see him in the light of Old Testament stories, the Old Testament story as a whole, that he is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus completes the Old Testament story. So, as we begin, what is it that we can learn from this? I mean, what is it that Matthew is trying to convey to us as he tells us this story? I think the first thing is that God is in charge of things. God is sovereign. He is in control of things. A corollary to that is that God's ways are not our ways. When you look at this list of people, who would have chosen such a list of ancestors for his son? You, in fact, could begin with the story of Joseph and Mary in which Jesus' birth into the world begins in the midst of potential scandal. Here is an engaged couple and she is pregnant. That's, that's certainly not how you want to tell the story of your life. Yes, my mom got pregnant and so my parents got married. Uh, and then when you go back in the genealogy, you have, well, scandalous characters. And this is seen primarily in the fact that women are mentioned in this genealogy. Very unusual in a Jewish uh, record of things. Luke includes no women, by the way. But Matthew includes four. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who, by the way, is not even mentioned by name. She is simply referred to as the one who had been Uriah's wife. I would think that if I were Matthew writing the genealogy of Jesus, I would pick out the best and the brightest characters, because he doesn't include everyone. We've seen that 14 should be 21 in the second group, and the 14 should be 21 in the third group. 
So Matthew has sort of handpicked the people that he includes, and why does he put it this way? One author put it this way, one gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament records until he could find the most questionable ancestors of Jesus available in order to put them in his record. And so it seems to preach the gospel. And what is the gospel? Well, it's the reality of mercy. Consider that these women are part of the story of Jesus. Do you know these women, these four women and their stories? The first is Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. She was the wife of Judah's oldest son, Ur. He was a wicked man, and so God killed him. It was the custom then, and then it became Mosaic law later, that if a man died without having any children, that his brother should uh, marry the widow, at least have one son to carry on the name, so that the first brother who died would not go without any descendants. So Judah told Onan, you need to fulfill this custom with your your sister-in-law. But again, if you read Genesis 38, uh, we find that he was a wicked man, and so God killed him as well. So Judah told Tamar, I have a third son. He's a little bit young. Wait till he grows up a bit, and then he will fulfill the duty of our custom so that Ur will have descendants. Well, as the son began to grow up, Tamar realized the promise would not be kept. And so what she did, she in fact disguised herself as a prostitute, went to near where her father-in-law was shearing sheep, and she became pregnant by him. Judah wanted to have her killed. She's a widow and she's pregnant. Obviously, she's done something wrong until she produced evidence that he was the father. And she gave birth to twins. And so the line of the Messiah goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah through his daughter-in-law, Tamar. The second woman is Rahab. And I think most people know the story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. She was a prostitute in Jericho. Uh, some people don't like to say this. They say, no, actually, she was an innkeeper. But if you look in Hebrews chapter 11 and James chapter 2, both which talk about Rahab as a figure of faith, that we should have faith like Rahab, they refer to her as Rahab the prostitute. I don't know about you, but if there are prostitutes in my family line, I'd rather not tell people about it. And yet, Matthew includes it here in the genealogy of the Messiah. And then there is Ruth. And at least here with Ruth, we have someone who um, maybe we could be proud of. Now, Rahab hid the spies, but the fact that she's a prostitute sort of mitigates that. But here is Ruth. And we remember Ruth, and oftentimes you hear Ruth chapter 1 quoted at weddings. Uh, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She tells uh, Naomi, I'm going to go with you. Uh, they're both widows now. Uh, she had been married to Naomi's son. Um, she goes back. She takes care of Naomi. She works in the field as a gleaner, which is backbreaking work to take care of her mother-in-law. So we might feel a certain relief. Well, it, okay, we'll let Ruth be in the genealogy. Until we realize that in Deuteronomy 23 it says, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. So that sort of eliminates her, and yet Matthew 
puts her in the genealogy. And then there is Bathsheba. I think everyone knows her story, beginning in 2 Samuel 11. She's not mentioned by name. Only her lawful husband is mentioned, that is Uriah. She's not referred to as David's wife. She is the woman who committed adultery with David. And as a result of the relationship, there was a pregnancy, a frantic attempt at cover-up, and finally a murder. And after Uriah's uh, murder, David and Bathsheba married. The child was born, the child of their adultery, but this child later died. However, another child, another son was conceived, and that was Solomon. See, in these four women, I think we, finally, we hardly find proper material for a genealogy. We usually want to establish the purity of a line. In, in the work I do in Philippine history, uh, when you join the various orders to become a Jesuit or an Augustinian or whatever, you had to prove that your family had been pure for four generations. And it seems if we're gonna talk about Jesus, the savior of the world, we don't want such people to be included in the list. If you had such women in your, your genealogy, you'd probably like to say they're from the other side. They're from the other side of the family. An unwed mother, a prostitute, a Moabitess, an adulteress, and they are not Jewish. Tamar is a Canaanite, Rahab is a woman of Jericho, Ruth is a Moabite, Bathsheba is married to a Hittite. Um, why didn't Matthew choose the women that we find in rabbinic literature? The four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. At least three of these, Sarah, Rebecca, and Leah were in the genealogy of the Messiah. Well, Matthew presents his four versions, if, if you wish, his vision of, of four women versus the traditional four matriarchs of the Old Testament. I want you to understand something. I'm not saying that these women were evil. Rather that they would appear to be unsuitable if you're going to tell the story of the ancestry of Jesus they are such obvious sinners that why would you include them? But stop and think a minute. So were the men. But we don't think that way, do we? If we say that the beginning of the genealogy is Jesus from Abraham, and we could just sagely shake our heads, yes, Father Abraham, he was the ancestor of the Messiah. Oh, really? Let's see, Abraham, who got Hagar pregnant, and had Ishmael and then kicked them both out. Um, Jacob, the deceiver. Well, I don't know that we want to include him. How about Judah with Tamar? And the list goes on and on. <coughs> I think, though, when we read the genealogy of the men, we don't think of their sins for some reason. And it is almost as though Matthew is trying to slap us or shake us to say, here, I want you to see something. The Messiah came into the world through sinners. And if he had only left the men's names, I think people might not have seen that. But by including these four women, these scandalous characters, he gets the point across. And that is that Jesus not only came for sinners, he will save his people from their sins, but he came through sinners. 
It's quite remarkable. Matthew wants us to see the providence of God. We see that there is a lack of convention to how God does things. I mean, who would have thought, seriously, that a daughter-in-law tricking her father-in-law into getting her pregnant, or a Canaanite prostitute helping two spies, or a Moabite widow leaving her country and moving to Bethlehem to take care of her mother-in-law, or an adulteress whose partner had her husband murdered, that from these would come the Messiah. It just doesn't seem possible. But this is the providence of God. Matthew wants to make it clear that Jesus coming into the world was no accident. He came in God's providence. Another thing that stands out to me in what we find here in this passage are the names that are given to the child. And this, again, is from the portion dealing with Joseph directly, verses 18 to 25. First of all, Jesus. In a dream, Jesus is told she will give, Joseph is told, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Gabriel told Mary the same thing, by the way, in Luke chapter 1, verse 31. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. The NIV has the following footnote. Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves, which fits with what the angel tells Joseph, because he will save his people from their sins. Joshua, by the way, is actually a contraction of Yehoshua, which means Yahweh, Jehovah, is the one who saves. In simpler language, God saves. In here, in the first name that is given to the child yet to be born, we find two deep truths about the Christ, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. The name Jesus, or God saves, is much more than a name. It is a perfect definition of who he is. If we take both words seriously, God, that's who he is, saves what he does, this is who he is. If we weaken either word, then the man we speak of is diminished as being a representative or instrument of God. He simply becomes an example. But if he is God saves, if he is God, then that's something quite different. In the Nicene Creed, we are told, Nicene Creed, we are told he is very God of very God. And if we weaken the saves part, then he is someone who is helpful with us helping us save our problems, or solve our problems, but not saving us, not liberating us. What does Jesus save us from? He saves us from our sins. Now for the Jewish people, and for some people even today, this is a great disappointment, because they don't see themselves as sinners. The Jews were looking for liberation from the Romans. People today might be looking for liberation from problems. But the idea that they are sinners and need to be saved, uh, I think people are very uncomfortable with that. Let us be clear that Jesus' mission is to save his people from their sins, not from their problems, not from their heartaches, not from their failures or their losses or anything else. He may, in fact, do that. But his name points out to the fact that he came to save people from their sins, which means they have sinned, they have sins, they are in need of being saved from them. And if you doubt that, Matthew would say, 
Look above. Look at the names. Look at the four women that are mentioned. And now we know that, in fact, people are sinners. When seen in this light, by the way, the Christmas message is not what most people want to hear. We want to think of God sending his wonderful gift of his son into the world to make things better. But to acknowledge that we are sinners and that Jesus came to save us, for some, I think, is a bit hard. Is it possible that we think we became sinners or we became Christians because we weren't sinners, that we were actually pretty good people and we just sort of needed an, an extra push to get us into the kingdom of God? I think at Christmas time we may forget that Jesus came to save sinners. And in this part of the story, we learn of God's sovereignty, God's mercy, and God's providence. And we are reminded of something that we so easily forget. God's ways are not our ways. If nothing else, this is what the genealogy Matthew records should tell us. The second name that is mentioned here, though, is Emmanuel. And here, uh, Matthew refers to the reference, uh, refers to Isaiah. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The second name mentioned for this child coming into the world is something that we hear oftentimes in carols. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and hark the herald angels sing. There is a a line that says, pleased as men with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Or in uh, angels we have heard on high, no, angels from the realms of glory, shepherds in the field abiding, watching o'er your flocks by night, God with man is now residing. And this should remind us of something we hear time and time again in the Old Testament. It is an ancient promise. Exodus 25. In giving instructions for the building of the tabernacle, then have them make a sanctuary for me, God says, and I will dwell among them. The great thing about being part of Israel after being delivered out of uh, Egypt is that God will live with them. In Ezekiel 48, in the very last verse of the book, and the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. This is an ancient promise, and it is now being fulfilled in this child. I would repeat to you what I read earlier from John 1. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Literally, it means when it says that he dwelt or made his dwelling among us, he pitched his tent among us. Here we are living, and Jesus came and pitched his tent to live among his people. And yet I find it interesting, have you considered that nowhere in the Gospels do we ever find someone calling Jesus Emmanuel? No one ever refers to him in that way after he is born. It's not a name by which he is called. Rather, it signifies who he was. And I don't think we need to limit our understanding of God with us as referring to his presence, his pitching his tent among us or living with us, but rather that God is with us in a way, I think, beyond what we normally understand. 
In the words of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, he too shared in their humanity, became human. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. This is what it means when we say God is with us. In the Old Testament, one might say that God was the above us God. God above us. More than the God with us, Emmanuel. We do read of the angel of the Lord appearing from time to time. But let's be clear, when Jesus comes into the world, this is not some new turn. It's not like God said, oh, I've been living up in heaven all this time, and now I've decided I'm going to come down uh, and live among humanity. Jesus coming into the world is a new way in which God is present with us. But it is, in fact, the continuation of the story. The story of the God who walked in the Garden of Eden and talked to Adam and Eve. The God who came to Abram and called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees and to go to Canaan. The God who wrestled with Jacob. The God who appeared to Moses and comes down to deliver Israel from Egypt. What we find in Jesus is the highest expression of God being with his people. And this will be consummated when Jesus returns. We read in Revelation, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and they will live with them. He will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Jesus is, in fact, Emmanuel. He is present with us in this evil world. He came to save his people from their sins because, in fact, they are sinners. In the past year, we looked uh, at the doctrine of creation and in a series sought to recover a doctrine of creation. And among the things we saw, I hope, is that as followers of Jesus Christ, who is God, we are to practice or to carry out two things that we find true about God himself. The first is presence, and the second is patience. To be present in the world of evil is to follow Jesus, the Word made flesh, who promised that he would never leave us, and who said he would be present with us even to the end of this age. It is not only presence, though, Emmanuel, that we are to practice. It is also patience. Patience is a primary mark of God's work in the world. And we see it in the genealogy in Matthew. I mean, didn't we just read about 42 generations? And that's from Abraham. He does, Matthew doesn't go back to Adam. Um, I mean, why didn't God just have Eve give birth to the Messiah? I mean, why wait all these generations? I think what we find is that God is a God of patience, and he works out his plan patiently, and he continues to work patiently. And if God is marked by patience, and we see it here in the genealogy, we are to be marked by it as well. Patience, however, is not inactivity. It is not passivity. It's not fatalism. Matthew, again, would have us see this. Tamar, 
deceiving Judah, Rahab a prostitute, Ruth leaving her country, Bathsheba committing adultery. All of these things, God is in fact in control. God is not passive. He's not sitting back in heaven waiting for these things to sort of unravel. God is at work patiently. And this same God who is so patient is the one who became incarnate and dwelt among us. He is the one who proclaims healing and he is the one who denounces injustice. We saw in the series that we confess belief in one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. When we do this, we confess that God lives by relationship. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, that involves relationship. If there were only two persons, it would in fact be exchange, reciprocity. But when you have the three, you have an interchange. And what we find is that this God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is life, and this relationship between them is in fact love. And that love is then, if you wish, expressed in creating the world, the universe, and creating humanity. In the life of the triune God, the Father freely gives himself to the Son, and the Son freely gives himself to the Father. And they both give themselves to the Spirit. This is what we see. This giving and receiving, as we saw in the series, is life. God is life. But it isn't simply some clinical breathing, this is life, this is living. It is, in fact, God's love as well. And so as we as I stumble over these names in the genealogy of Matthew, I am reminded of so many things. But one is that God knows what he's doing. It doesn't always seem that way. In fact, often it doesn't. And I find my impatience in the face of God's patience. Again, why did it take so long for all these things to happen? But God is patient, and in that patience is his presence. And finally, we have a child that is born, Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. I'm also struck by the fact that God is not ashamed to be associated with me, with you, with people. The first hymn we sang today was the God of Abraham Praise. I like this hymn. I like the notion that the same God that Abraham worshipped is the same God that we worship. But when we sing that hymn, do we ever think about the things that Abraham did? In one of the Psalms, Psalm 46, says, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Could you say that again? The God of Jake, Jacob, the deceiver? I, I'm not sure that that's who I would want to put on my resume. I don't think I would want to describe myself as being associated at all with this, this man who lied to his father, who cheated his brother out of the birthright, and yet God says, I'm Jacob's God. And when we see the genealogy, every name that we stumble over should scream to us, God is at work. God, through Jesus, is saving his people. This patient God, this present God, is working out his plan in humanity, in history. 
And if nothing else, it should fill us with gratitude, but perhaps we should begin with humility and say, okay, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. If he saved me, then that means I am a sinner. And then delight in the fact that God has sent his son. Let's pray together. Father, as is so often the case, we sort of mess things up. And at this time of the year, when we remember the coming of your son, um, our thoughts go to different places, rarely to the fact of the wonder of your presence and your patience in dealing with sinful humanity that includes us. And having your son to be born out of such a messed up bunch of people as we see in this genealogy. That Jesus was not ashamed to call us brothers, that we are family. It is staggering. It's amazing. I think we lose sight of it because we forget who we are. That in fact, we needed to be saved from our sins. And our situation was such that it took a baby being born into the world, coming and living among us and giving his life that our sins would be washed away. Here we are at the end of 2014. By your grace, as we look to a new year, may we be reminded of your presence and your patience. And remember that as we are called to be followers of your son, we are to be marked by presence and patience as well. We thank you for loving us for giving us life, for sustaining our lives, and for working in our lives in ways that oftentimes we could not imagine. Sometimes in ways that we are not exactly thrilled with. But as we look at Matthew 1, may we be reminded that your ways are not our ways. And in fact, you know exactly what you're doing. Give us the faith, the grace, the trust to look to you in humility and to trust you. Thank you for carrying us through this past year. And even as you prepare the way for us in the year to come, may we walk in the steps of Jesus. May we follow his example. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.